passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the Inside Carolina Podcast. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. It is Sunday. That means it is the day after. the day after podcast means Carolina must have had a game on Saturday. Tar Heels uh, went down to Georgia looking for what they could steal. And they came up with a big L in Atlanta. Buck, um, it feels like we've done this podcast at least six times in the Mac Brown 2.0 era. And it feels like the same show over and over. So we're not going to go on and on and on about it. But I will say this to lead the show and then let you guys set me straight. It can't keep happening the same way. At some point, the coaching staff has got to do something different. That's my opinion. They looked awful yesterday. Jeff Sims looked like an All-American. The defense got shredded. Uh, The offense was bad. Pretty much just like it's been on every primetime away game since Matt got back. Buck, your take. Well, it's been that way on one out of six of them. Um. Or, well, five out of six, uh, every, well, the last six night games, Tar Heels have lost five of them. Um, so, and, and pretty much in the same fashion, several of those games, um, last night and then against Florida state and against Virginia, the Tar Heels were 14 point favorites. So, uh, it seems like there's a magic formula for North Carolina to lose a game like this, and that's play away from home, be a 14-point favorite, and um, play at night. Throw in wearing the Stormtrooper unis, and you got a recipe for disaster. I can't explain it, uh, and I I guess that's probably um, okay since I'm not the one that gets paid the big bucks to explain it. So, uh, but I do think some, um, explanations and some fixes are in order. hundred percent agree with that. Jason, uh, got a lot to talk about on this one. Um, but to Buck's point, we can't explain it. The people that are getting paid to explain it are saying it's embarrassing, uh, gotta be better, uh, and all that, but you know, that's cool. One or two times but we're up to five times on the road and Georgia tech credit them. I mean, Jeff Collins had them ready to play and they came out and held on long enough before exploding Jason, but the, the preparation, the keeping your team level, keeping your team, um, you know, where you don't have these such drastic up and downs. I mean, that, that lies at the feet of the grownups in the room. Like I tweeted last night, um, and I'm glad we don't do these shows right after the game. But, Jason, give us some reasoning here um, before we get into the nuts and bolts of how this one went down. Well, I mean, I think you do need as a staff to evaluate what you're doing on the road in terms of preparation, in terms of how you're, how you're handling things at the, at the hotel. In term, all, you know, everything needs to be considered uh, because it is – absolutely clear that your players are not as comfortable and as uh, prepared as they should be when they're playing on the road. I mean, the, the road versus home difference for this, this team the last few years has been really, really large. And you, you have to figure out what is it that is, what, what changes in our routine 
are there? What are we able to do at home that we haven't been able to do it on the road? And what is it that needs to, needs to be fixed uh, in, that, in that preparation process? Because there's clearly a disconnect. There is clearly something going on there in terms of the, uh, the preparation process. I mean, you all know I'm not all that uh, keen on people, you know, crediting home, you know, home field or home crowd difference, you know, that, that uh, you know, the, the crowd doesn't beat you. But there is definitely a difference between home and away in terms of performance of this Carolina team. And it has been the last few years. So at that point, you know, what is it is the, is the question. It's unlikely to be the, to be the crowd, but you start looking at the numbers and you go, yeah, there's a really significant fall off. And particularly on offense, interestingly, I mean, I think the offense has really struggled uh, with comparatively at home versus on the, or, or on the road versus at home. So you need to figure out what it what it is that you can get more comfortable at and where you can make some of those adjustments. And again, I think a large percentage of that has to be in terms of what you're doing preparation wise. But I don't think there's any easy answers. Definitely not. There is a, an easy result that we see and that Carolina, the Carolina fan base is justifiably a little bit irate about. Um, but looking at this ball game, Buck. Let's start on the offensive side. I mean, Sam Howell makes a run early. Um, one of the more impressive quarterback runs I've seen Carolina quarterback make. Been watching and doing this stuff for a long time. I um, mean, then they just fall off a cliff. It sort of reminds me of games in the past where, and it's not just Carolina, it's other schools. So teams go down, score, make it look fairly easy, and then the rail, the wheels and the rails and all that fall off. What do you see from the offensive side of the ball? I, I know this. I know Georgia Tech had two or three sacks coming into the game, and they had eight or nine or something like that last night. I'm looking at the numbers, um, but admittedly very bleary-eyed. Um, does this rest with the offensive line, um, or is it time to start heaping a little bit of the blame on Sam Howell, a little bit more of the blame on Sam Howell maybe? Well, you know, from the beginning, I've, I've always thought that Sam held on to the ball a little too long. And the coaching staff has also said the same thing, that uh, Sam needs to let the, the ball go a little sooner, go to the check down a little quicker. And, and last night, though, even very early on, even in that first drive, it seemed like Sam was just off. Uh, he overthrew several passes early. I think he was, he was only one of five of his first uh, uh, passes, first pass attempts. He went one of five. And several of those, he overthrew Antoine Green a couple of times. They went to Anton Green early a lot. Uh, and it just did not seem, and I think that was probably by plan that they went to Green uh, so many times early, but Sam was overthrowing him and overthrowing him. And he just did not look comfortable from the get go later on in the game. Uh, Sam was missing some, uh, some throws It was pointed out on the television replay, but, um, there were several post routes, the deep post routes that Sam just didn't see. He just missed them entirely. And the guy was open. So it's hard to figure exactly what was going on. And, and I think some of it was going on in Sam Howell's head. Uh, he just was not, um, I, I think I got an agreement an amen there from, uh, uh, <laughs> Mr. From, Staples. Uh, Mr. Staples. His, uh, yeah. <laughs> YouTube so, crowd. You need to see the, uh, but, head Bob. Go ahead, Bob. but, but any event there's, um, a lot of blame to go around, uh, as far as, uh, Georgia tech being able to, uh, scheme North Carolina's offensive line. There's several occasions where particularly when North Carolina went to its, um, uh, power game where they were pulling guys, uh, they were pulling the, uh, Zidu and, you know, guys seem Richards one time and rallies, they, they bring the tight end over as sort of a pull. Um, uh, 
they were getting there late. Georgia Tech was beating them to the spot where the uh, puller was supposed to be and, and getting a clean run through on the, uh, on the offensive line. That, that guy that was pulling across the line of scrimmage was supposed to uh, get that guy coming through, but didn't get there on time. Georgia Tech got through there quicker than uh, the puller was able to block it up. So part of it was by scheme. A lot of it was by effort, just sheer effort. Uh, Georgia Tech was just more energized, it seemed like, uh, the entire game. That was pretty easy to see. Uh, just a myriad of things. I don't think you can point to one thing uh, exclusively, but I, I think, as I said earlier, a lot of what was going on in Sam's head uh, contributed probably uh, number one. Jason, I'll let you come in here. I mean, when you look at the numbers at the end of the day, 25, 39, 306, and two, and no interceptions, hey, that looks like a solid night. You toss in three fumbles and eight sacks, and you turn into a, a big defeat. Um, what's going on in, in Howell's head? I do find it interesting that uh, folks have, well, some folks have jumped off the Howell bandwagon um somebody tweeted at me that uh he's mediocre quarterback always has been blah blah stuff like that clearly though this year's been different I, I think the pressure of replacing guys has fallen square on his shoulders at least in his head and it's shown a lot by like buck said just trying to do too much and being not being in the moment but being trying to be bigger than the moment where you see jason well, there's a few things here um, that kind of have to be evaluated at once. And, and Buck mentioned uh, the, few, the few angles that we were able to see of where you actually were able to see receivers <laughs> because those were some of the tightest and worst angles of any game you'll ever see shot, uh, inexcusable from uh, the ESPN folks to, to, shoot a, to shoot a game where – when a quarterback throws, the only people you see on screen are the quarterback and offensive linemen. And, and to that linemen. point, how easy it is, is it to zoom out? It's just not hard. But the problem is that these camera operators imagine that they're doing art house theater, <laughs> that you need to, you know, that you need to zoom in on the player and all of this. No, no, no. We don't want to zoom in on the player. We're not interested in seeing the player. We want to watch the game where there's, you know, 22 players on the field. It would be nice to be able to see the game, but then that would help be able to assess what's going on. But there were a number of plays where they were a little wider at times. I think the camera operator was just asleep or forgot to zoom in too far. <laughs> and on those plays, there were some, some significant things that I was seeing. Uh, and the biggest concern that I've had about Howell in the past, in terms of his processing quickly and getting the ball out, has continued to show up this year. And one of the things that's, that that's paired with is the reason that he's getting the ball out or that he's not getting the ball out is, is the most concerning thing to me. This is not a situation where you've just got guys that are covered and there's nobody open. And so he's not getting it out. The problem is that he's locking in on one receiver and then he's waiting for that guy to get open or clear a specific player. And he's not, actually seeing the field or reading the full secondary in order to in order to say okay oh wow you know safety jumped that's going to be open and come off of his first guy so buck you mentioned those those couple um uh post routes that came open deep that he missed and of course he made up for it with what he does best which is throw the deep ball on on a couple play a couple plays later but the reason that he missed those post routes is the most concerning thing for me and that's that he was actually he was locked in on the first one in particular. He was locked in on Josh Downs coming open. It's like he was watching where his eyes should be as a, as a quarterback coach, where his eyes should be is looking. You always get your eyes to the backside safety first. He's going to tell you what the what the defense is, what the defense actually is. There's the old you know corners lie. Safeties tell the truth. Backside safety is always going to tell you what the coverage is. So your eyes should go there immediately first. Just glance at him, see what he's doing, where he's at is going to tell you what's going on. 
as soon as you look at where that backside safety is, now you look at that front side safety and they're running just the college route. It's the old Mills concept from Steve Spurrier, where you have basically a, 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 an in route from, from one of the receivers on the same side and a post route over the top of that. Your read is pretty simple. If that safety steps forward, you throw it over his head. And you should be looking at that safety. That's where your eyes go. But his eyes were actually not on that safety from what I could tell. He was looking for the underneath coverage to, for downs to clear, and he was waiting on downs. But if his eyes are where they're supposed to be, this is an eye discipline issue. If his eyes are where they're supposed to be, he pulls the trigger as soon as that safety stays put. But his eyes are not in the right spot because he's looking for a player to clear to grass and he's waiting on his guy. And that you just can't have that in a third year starter at quarterback that kills you. And the thing is they, they called the same play twice because it came open. And that's one of those, like you signal that in and you go, you know, go post whatever your signal for post is, you know, look post peak post. And he still missed it. And in this case, it was because his footwork was bad. And because he, again, got locked in on another receiver. So to me, a big part of why he's holding onto the ball so long is that he's deciding pre-snap much more often than not who his target is almost certainly going to be. And if it's not that guy, he slow, his process slows down and he's not getting his eyes in the right spot. And then he starts to move a little bit and then he gets in trouble and that, that hurts your wide receivers. That absolutely kills your offensive line because they're, they, the ball's got to be out. And if you look at his time to time to release on eight of those sacks. So he had what eight, you said eight sacks. I'm looking oh. at it now. Yeah. Yep. Eight sacks. So you look at eight sacks. I need to go back through them, but I would venture to, to bet that if I were coaching offense, I would have credited six of those eight sacks to Sam. That they're on the quarterback. Your job was to get it out here. You didn't get, get the ball, get rid of the ball against this particular look to the right guy on time. And the reason you're on your back is because you just didn't assess and, and, and look where you need to on the field to be able to get rid of the football to the right guy. And I think what we're seeing right now is, and this is one of the reasons why a lot of times, you know, young guys get higher grades than older guys, because, you know, film starts to, you start to see weaknesses with different personnel and all that stuff. Howell's been exposed a little bit in the last few, last few weeks without the security blanket of those two stud running backs. And in particular, uh, uh, you, you know, Daz, you know, basically Downs has compensated for Daz, but in particular, uh, uh, you, you have um, Deami Brown. So without Brown and without those two backs, he's actually having to spread the ball across the field to different receivers and actually make reads instead of being a pick and pop guy. And what I mean by pick and pop guy is you pick your receiver and then you just let it loose. You just pop, bam. And it's out because you know where you're going pre-snap or you know where you're going based on that guy with that matchup is going to be, is going to win. He's look, the guy, you know, what his, what his strengths are. He's an accurate thrower when he's, when he's in the pocket, really accurate. He's got a phenomenal deep ball. One of the best in the, one of the best in college football, the last few years, no question. And when he knows where he's got to throw and he throws from the pocket He's generally going to put it on target. Although even there, sometimes he's been inconsistent this year. I mean, some of his ball locations have not helped. I mean, he's, he's actually thrown high more often this year than he did in the past. But as soon as he's not picking and popping, as soon as it's not a, okay, there's going to be grass here, there's going to be space here, and now I'm just throwing it to, to my guy. As soon as it's a, okay, this is a three-receiver three route based on this coverage – you're going to have three options and the coverage may shift post snap and you're not sure who's going to come open. As soon as you put him in that situation, 
the processing speed has not been there and he's not made those decisions as quickly as he needs to. And I think also not making those decisions as quickly has led to some of the accuracy uh, differences that we've seen at times because he's throwing in a hurry instead of processing on time and throwing based on when he should be throwing. So there's a lot going on there, but the fact is to me, this offense was going to go as far as Sam Howell was going to take him this year. And there are definite, look, there, there are definite things that, that could be better around him. I mean, I think the running backs had a poor day in terms of their vision. I thought the offensive line was average. I thought the receivers were a little above average. But basically, this was a situation where you're expecting a third-year Sam Howell to make everybody better, and he didn't. And, you know, in, in certain cases, he actually made guys, made, made his teammates look worse by not doing what you would expect him to do as a third year player. And I know that's heavy criticism, but I mean, it's that that's, that's multiple games this year where that's been the case from him. So, you know, it's the tape doesn't lie. Buck, I caught your head nodding there. I mean, a lot of people, um, and and, yeah, I think there's the, there's trust issues with the receivers. Uh, There is uh, offensive line issues clearly, but I agree with Jason here. Um, he's got to be better. I mean, when he puts one there for a touchdown, guys got to catch it. That alleviates a lot of the issues. But, but you were nodding your head when Jason was talking. I don't know what's more surprising on this season than what Jason just described. What do you think? Well, again, I think Jason is kind of nailing it with the, the personnel issues. And, and I do think that, the, the loss of um, Michael Carter and Javante Williams are the two biggest losses off of the offense. If they had both of those guys back this year uh, and the same receiving core, I think they'd be fine uh, because they could count on those guys. We saw uh, a couple of times last night where North Carolina had a second and one. and couldn't convert it and then the third and one and couldn't convert it running back ran right into the back of the offensive line there was a seam by design that he's got a hit and he just completely missed it It, with Javante Williams and this is the difference with Javante Williams it's probably a six-yard gain instead of a one-yard loss or a 30-yard game. <laughs> yeah, there you know, might be that too. One of those. Uh, so I, I do think that the the running back issue, and I think Ty Chandler's given it all he's got, and, and he does look good at times, but uh, Ty Chandler uh, is, is cannot compensate for uh, the loss of Carter and Williams. That, it, just not happening. And uh, last year on that second and one play it's first down move on to the next play and that gives a quarterback so much more confidence and um just he's thinking positive more often uh that yeah i you know when this play comes and it's an rpo i got no problem handing the ball off to uh, Javante or Michael, cause I know they're going to get eight or nine yards for me. And then next time around, if I see something open, um, the defense can't stop at all. So I- I'm going to get mine, uh, as the game develops. Um, now, uh, to Jason's point, I would disagree a bit on the, um, offensive line as is average comment because they weren't making any holes for the running backs for the most part. Oh, I I saw quite a few, actually. I saw a lot of them, but they were missed. And this is the thing. The running back's job is to make the offensive line look good. And one of the the ways that that you can think about this is, you remember how even two years ago, we would talk about how, man, it just seems like the offensive line just blocks better for Javante Williams. Well, there's a reason for that. Because he would actually see where he was where he was supposed to go. He would read on the fly and his eyes and his feet were lined up. 
And all of a sudden he'd run to where there was daylight, whereas other backs wouldn't necessarily even see that daylight. And we're in a situation right now where there aren't, there's not a whole, there's not obvious, you know, okay, they've opened this big gap right here and you're supposed to go right there. But, you know, you got a zone scheme and things are getting washed. And if you just stick your foot in the ground and, and peel back, you've got, you've got a seam for, you know, for positive yardage. There was a lot of that in the back and the backs just didn't hit it. Now, I agree they didn't open a bunch of, a bunch of big holes, but there was, there was space to be, to be had. And, and there were a ton of tackles for loss, too. Um, how many? I'm thinking I don't have the stat sheet in front of me. 14, 15, something crazy like that. Um, 13. 13. So, I mean, there's only so much a running back can do uh, if he is hit in the backfield. Now, you're right. Even, even there, a lot of that is vision and knowing yep. when, where to put your foot in the ground and all that sort of thing. But, and of those 13, eight are sacks. So that's a, that's a pretty good uh, night by a defensive line that had had two sacks and, what, five or six tackles for loss against uh, three other teams. Uh, yeah, I so think, I think most of those were from Thomas, uh, who Charlie Thomas flex player. Yeah. Charlie so Thomas, four, four and a half tax, uh, tackles for loss, two and a half, yeah, sacks. two and a half sacks. Yep. That's a hell of a night. Yeah. He had a, he, he had an all ACC night folks. That's, uh, <laughs> did some work. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's clearly some issues with the offensive line. We can't, you know, just let them off the hook, so to speak. Amen. Uh, but, um, certainly there was, uh, and the receivers, if you, again, of course, stat sheets can be deceiving at times, but, uh, you know, you're talking about how's, uh, passing numbers for tonight, 306 high completion, uh, percentage, a uh, couple of touchdowns look really good from a, a, a pure passing point statistically. But um, at the same time, the um, the numbers can be very uh, deceiving in the sense that uh, on the same stat sheet, you will see probably the best night the receiving group has had in terms of uh, diversity of catches and numbers and so on and so forth. Like uh, Morales, Morales had uh, seven catches for 66. Emory Simmons had a good night. Uh, you know, Josh Downs had uh, a number of catches and a number of uh, yards. Give the stat sheet a quick look. Uh, Simmons had 110 yards. His best uh, night of the, of the season, I think, or close to it. Uh, Morales had 66 downs had 53 and Antoine green had 50. That's, that's the best night that UNC has had in terms of, um, the most participation from the most number of guys in the passing game. So, you know, the receiving core, you know, was getting open, uh, and, uh, getting a solid number of yards and, and how was getting the, the ball there enough to win. Uh, but the running game wasn't there and the turnovers just killed North Carolina, um, and, and, and the sacks. So, uh, that's the story of the, of the day, uh, or the night for offense for me, but the defense, we probably can't get off of this, uh, podcast without talking about the defense. Um, uh, you're right there. I'm going to talk about Johnny T-shirt, johnnytshirt.com briefly um, so we can take a break. And I'm going to get back on the angle I was going to take for this entire show. Uh, but Johnny T-shirt certainly sponsors of this podcast. Great friends of Inside Carolina and great friends of you. If you're a premium subscriber, you get 10% off your everyday order. They've got a great selection there. I get emails for sales all the time. So sign up for their emails. Uh, sign up for Inside Carolina Premium. It's quite interesting on the premium boards right now. Uh, yeah. And you get the analyst or the analysis from Buck Sanders. Great column on Buck stops here. Another great one today. Jason Staples films breaks downs. That will be interesting this week. And also, again, that 10% with Johnny T-shirt. Take a short break. Let the national guys pay the bills. We'll be right back day after podcast. 
destruction in Atlanta, not the way we thought it would go down. We'll be right back. Hey, guys, this is Ross Martin from Inside Carolina, and I want to talk to you about Inside Carolina's new podcast sponsor. It's Blue Shark Vodka. Blue Shark Vodka is a family-owned vodka company based out of Wilmington and Wrightsville, North Carolina. It's available in all 100 counties. And the thing about Blue Shark Vodka is it's the smoothest vodka in the world. It's made with sweet North Carolina corn to create the world's smoothest vodka. It's been distilled four times and then mellowed for 28 days to create that full blooming and awaking flavor. Each batch is in triple filtered, giving it a smooth, clean finish and eliminates any of the alcohol bite. Guys, I've been using it recently with some soda water, fruit juice, little lime juice. It's great for tailgates. It's light, it's smooth, and it's an award-winning premium vodka from North Carolina, local and family-owned. And it's available, once again, in all 100 counties. So head to your local ABC store to check out Blue Shark Vodka. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, we're back with the day after podcast. Of course, that's Buck Sanders. I'm Tommy Ashley, and this is Jason Staples. And I'm on, uh, we referenced it briefly early. Here's where the dam broke, boys. And I'm going to put it at the feet of the grownups again. Ty Chandler, nine-yard gain to the UNC 41. Ty Chandler, no yard rush. Ty Chandler, no yard rush. Timeout, Carolina. Okay, you burn a timeout and you still go for it. On your side of the field, the game's 13 to seven at the time. The defense is playing well um, or has played well. Sims is in the game, but they stopped him on his first drive. And then you inexplicably go for first down after you've already missed it on second and third and short Jason it can't happen two things two catastrophic errors in my mind on that play and I don't care what the analytics say one if you're going to go for it on fourth down have the play in on third down you don't burn a time out there that's simple and it happens all the time with this team and secondly your defense is playing well punt the football live to fight another day you can't give up a short field. That's what they preach all the time, and yet they do it anyway. To me, people talk about the Chaffrey Brown drop was bad. I agree. It was. <laughs> that, this play, this series right here is was the oh, you know what moment for this game in my mind, and it certainly played out that way in the end. What do you say? I think they should have gone for it. It was the right call. It was absolutely the right call. And you follow the analytics there. Now I have a very, very, I have very strong opinions on using a timeout there and then going for it. And then using a timeout and going for it with that particular combination of a play call and execution, especially since Sam Howell, as far as I could tell, misread the play and, uh, and twice actually. And, uh, got them into a position where he ran himself into numbers and then made the wrong read as a runner. So the execution looked even worse, but to me, I thought that was a bad play call in the situation, given what you were getting from your running game, getting what you were getting from your, uh, from your offense overall and getting, and, and then you combine that with a bad decision in terms of, read from the from the uh, quarterback on the read game that should have been a handoff and then after making that bad decision compounding that by not going the proper direction based on your on your blocker which then leads to a loss so there was a lot of bad stuff there timeout i think suspect play call poor execution from your quarterback and also you know, so-so execution from your offensive line and uh, negative, you know, I would give a minus to your, to your uh, lead blocker at, at the tight end position there as well. So 
yeah, I agree that that was a, an absolute momentum shift and that, 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 that was a transition point in this game. But I think you, I think you have to follow the math. I mean, why take the risk of punting there? I mean, it's a worse decision, you know, why roll the dice? What's the risk punting? of punting there? What's the, the, risk? the risk? Your of defense punting there is given that expected, 80 yards the risk, of, the, the risk of punting there is that your expected value is, is worse. So it's one of those things like, okay, if I tell you your odds of, of winning go are, you know, based on a thousand prior iterations of this situation, your odds of winning go up by two points. If you go for this, they go down by two points. If you, or, you know, let's say percentage, your odds of winning go up by 5%. If you go for this, your odds of losing go up by 5%. If you punt it, you can say that, well, you ought to go, you ought to punt it. But I mean, I, I think the risk is, well, we're going to, we're going to buck the odds. We're going to punt it and, and it's going to be worse. And the analytics are pretty clear there that it should, that it's a go because possession of the ball matters a lot. And the fact of the matter is if you can't get short yardage, if you can't win in short yardage, you're probably going to lose the game because that is so much that tells you so much about the game anyway. And as it turns out, the defense really struggled in the second half. And here's the thing based on what happened defensively from that point forward, would it matter if you got an extra 30 yards, if you, if they had to go an extra 30 yards, I mean, that's really what you're getting. I mean, so if you punt, you're giving them the ball with, uh, with 30 yards further to go. Ben if Kiernan you keep the... downs it inside the 10. Carolina's maybe, defense is played. Maybe. I guess we'll never know, bottom line. We'll never know. But, but my view is, is very much, it's sort of like bunting in baseball. Teams used to bunt all the time. And it used to be one of those like, well, you need to bunt here. And commentators all the time would criticize teams for not bunting. But the analytics were so strongly against bunting that like, no, that the risk is not bunt. The, the, the risk is when you choose not to bunt that basically all these teams decided eventually to, to make that call. It's the same thing here. The risk is actually deciding to trust your defense in this era of offensive football, rather than taking the take than then uh, coming into the game and making sure that you're ready to go. To me, the, the debacle starts with, if I know that I'm going to be a team that's going to go for fourth down and I'm going to play the math and I'm going to, I'm going to make the right decisions there. I need to have five plays that I absolutely know I can count on that. I feel really strongly that I know I can block against what they're doing, that, that this is bread and butter that we work on a regular basis. And I don't see that. That's what my objection is. And I see the same problems in the red zone at times where the red zone, you know, over the past couple of years, uh, past few years, the, some of the approaches in the red zone, actually you can take this all the way back into the Fedora era for sure. Some of the approaches in the red zone drive me nuts. It's like, look, this is really important situationally and you need to have a really strong identity of who you're going to be here and know that this is what we're going to do. And the fact that you take a timeout before that tells me that you, you, you don't actually have that, that little box on your play sheet that says, okay, our first, fourth, and one, this is what we're running. Mm -hmm. That needs to be decided on Thursday. Actually, that needs to be decided on Monday or Sunday. And then you work that hard at least one day in the week. And then you go back over it and you make sure that that, that, that box on your play sheet is filled on Thursday and Friday. So that when you come to the game, you can tempo that. The best thing you can do is go third and short. You don't get it. And then all of a sudden you go tempo and you have your automatic call so that you can, you can run, run that out on fourth and one and do something that you've been working on all week as this is our fourth and one call in this case. And we just go alert one, alert one, alert one, bam. And everybody does it. And you do it before the defense can even get set into their fourth and one defense. And you feel pretty good about that. That's where my objection is. It's not the call to go for it. That's the right call. It's how you go for it that you, that you put yourself in a better chance to make the decision. As soon as you take the timeout, you're letting the defense go with the personnel they want. You're letting them dictate a lot of things by alignment, formation, different things like that. 
Now you've given them some advantages. That's my objection. Once you take the time out, that, that, that drives me crazy because that communicates some things in terms of lack of preparation that need to be better during the week. Yep. I, I disagree on the, the, uh, the, I don't think they should have gone for it, especially after you call the timeout for the reasons you just talked about, kick the damn football. But Buck, I want to bring you in on it. Uh, you know, it goes back to game day situational coaching and it all relates to the grown-ups in the room. You run the you run the same play virtually three times and they don't get a yard. Yes, that's bad. You're probably gonna lose. But Josh or Sims has had issues turning the ball over. You know, didn't last night, but he has all year. You punt them back deep and force them to snap it more than twice before they score. Um, that's why I think it was a horrific call um, and a horrific execution, whatever, kick the football. But what do you think? And then we'll move on to something else with the defense. I think you're both right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, there we you go. Know, uh, there, there's something to be said. I mean, um, for punting the ball in that situation, you're right that uh, – if you force uh, Sims, who is his first game back, uh, to drive the length of the field to score, then you're going to have a better chance, possibly, of him not being able to score. Um, I like the attitude. I like the statement that it makes when it's near the 50-yard line and it's fourth down and one. Uh, and it's sort of like the, uh, the three point shooter on the basketball court, right? The guy that's got the, you know, the 25% third point, uh, three point line, uh, average. And, you know, he's, he's taking a shot from deep from three and the coach is there saying, don't shoot, don't shoot, don't shoot. Great shot. Um, and, and in, in this particular situation, had they picked up that first down, um, that's certainly something we would not be talking about today. Um, and, and it would have made a, it would have made a little bit of a statement. North Carolina would have had a shorter field, possibly Georgia tech would have had a longer field. Um, and certainly as Jason said, a transitional moment, I can see it both ways, um, and argued both ways. And, and I don't know that there's a right answer there. I do know that, um, if it's second and one. Forget the fourth and one call. You need to have a second and one call. You know, you need to have a, a call where, hey, if I if I'm within a yard of the you know first down marker, there's got to be a play in my repertoire that's going to get me that one yard 95% of the time. And third and one, if we didn't make it on second and one, okay, somebody slipped, there was a fluke or something, but third and one and they miss it again. No. Uh, so uh, there should have been a second and one call there in the playbook. Um, and to without... me, the second and one call should have been a throw. Pump it deep. Free down. You, see, <laughs> you, see, you, you know, it's four. If you know, it's four down territory. Yes. Right. If you know you're, that's four down territory, which again, this is planning. Yeah. Okay. This is four down territory. You communicate that as a staff. That means I know that if I have a third-year quarterback who I can trust to not get sacked, which is how third-year quarterbacks should be. So, you know, you get extra pressure, you just throw it away, you get rid of the football quickly. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do as a third-year quarterback. So now I've got that third-year quarterback that I can trust, and it's it's second and one. I'm, I'm using that opportunity to, you know, maybe test the defense with something. Go play action and – go play action because they're going to bite on play action. That's right. right. So now, you know. now, I mean, this is the play that you can really manipulate a defense with and see what you can do. And then, okay, now you're third and one, and now you got two plays. Yeah. Mind boggling. It's in cute. So number. what you're both saying now is that I'm right. 
Well, you're always right. <laughs> I understand jefe, that. You are, you know, yeah, we're, we're going to go with that, El Jefe. And I, and I believe that when we had you on Inside Carolina Live yesterday, you nailed it on that segment, and you nailed it on your pregame column and all. Um, so, yeah, you're always right. I understand my lane, and I stay in it as frequently <laughs> as possible. <laughs> let's, uh, let's look at the defense. And, and, Jason, this is something we talked about off air uh, briefly, and I wanted you to stop talking then so you can start talking now. Jeremiah Gimmel's comment uh, that they did not prepare for Jeff Sims um, has certainly gotten folks, what's a nice word, uh, twerked up. And at times, I believe right, rightfully so. But explain uh, your take on this, because I think it, it has more clarity than maybe some of the, the flamethrowing that has gone on since he made it. My first thought on hearing that comment was, well, why would you prepare separately for Jeff Sims? He does the same stuff as Yates, just better. This is not a situation where you've got, you know, you've got the elf and uh, as one quarterback and then, you know. Uh, Baker Mayfield. Know. Yeah, or well, no, even, Lamar, even Jackson. Versus, uh, Lamar Jackson as the other, right? If you've got those two quarterbacks or if you've got, you know, quarterback one quarterback that's a runner and one quarterback that's a thrower and you have a different offense for each one of them, then yeah, you know what? You prepare differently for those guys. But Georgia Tech's running the same stuff for Yates as they as they are for for Sims. It's just Sims does it better. So at that point, you're not preparing for a quarterback. You're preparing for the Georgia Tech offense and what they do. <laughs> Which, I mean, to like, this point, hasn't been very much. You know, no. you need to throw that in the mix. No, but, I mean, the, the difference is that Sims is much more of a weapon as a runner because of his because of his size and overall speed makeup that, you know, you could see that in, in a couple plays where, uh, you know, the, the play with Eugene Asante, he gets him one-on-one in the open field and you could see that, you know, look, one guy's a better athlete than the other there, you know, Sims was just flat out a dude on that play and turned a turned what should have been about a three yard gain into a what 40 yard play. And that's not a situation of not being prepared for a specific quarterback. That's just a situation of that quarterback doing what you knew they were going to do with the other guy too, and doing it better. Although also the, the bigger problem here is not so much lack of preparation for a quarterback. What's concerning to me is all of the, all of the busts in terms of run fits at different points in this game, they played undisciplined on defense. There were a lot of plays where, and that was one of them where, you know, you had two guys in the same gap. You had the defensive end. That was, uh, that was Des, that was Des uh, uh, Lawrence or uh, yeah, that was Des. Yeah, Des Evans. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Des Evans. Wrong who, Des. Yeah, wrong Des. <laughs> Look, I've been doing this too long, and keeping names straight is getting harder and harder as I do I, this. I agree with that statement um, totally. But, but yeah, that was Des Evans, and he took the outside gap. And then they had a blitz behind it with Conley, and Conley also went outside. One of those guys has to take the C gap instead of the D gap. And if you, if you have those guys in the right gaps, then there's no run. And then you don't end up with the, with the situation where the, the spy, and they had a spy on the quarterback there, basically. That was Asante. The spy got into that one-on-one -on -one and got embarrassed. Well, you can't have that, you can't have that bust. And they had, a, they had a number of those where, you know, instead of they had guys chasing the running back when they're responsible for the quarterback or guys that took just the wrong angle here and there uh, that allowed a running back space. So just little things in terms of fundamentals on run fits were really what killed them in the second half. This was not about not being prepared for a quarterback or what that quarterback does or whatever. They're running the same stuff. The problem is that they got out of sorts and stopped doing their jobs when that quarterback made a few plays. And that, that to me is what, what happened is that, that, that some of the discipline and some of those things broke down and defense is really, you know, it becomes defensive Armageddon when you have guys that stop doing their job and start trying to do someone else's job because they're worried about X, Y, and Z. 
defense is all about doing your job and beating the guy who's responsible from ke- for keeping you from doing your job. As soon as you're not in your gap, because maybe you're trying to make a play and get, you know, you're jumping around a little bit. As soon as you're out of your gap, it's a big play. That's just the way football is. And defense is a team game. You have to be in your exact right spot and do it with your hair on fire. And I saw some hair on fire, but then I saw, you know, toast on, on, as a result of that, as guys got out of gaps, as guys collapsed on a back when the quarterback, you know, was keeping it as guys, you know, were held up by the quarterback and kept bad angles and allowed backs inside a, a variety of different things. This was on poor discipline on the defensive side. And does that, you know, is that just players? No, I'm not just blaming players here. It's the coaching staff's job to get the defense coordinated and to get the defense to do their jobs, to make sure that those fundamentals are, are kept. And they didn't do a good enough job with that. They didn't, they weren't able to get these guys to actually stay in the proper gaps to match up with what, with what they were doing. So, and to force Georgia Tech to do what they didn't, what they don't do well. You want Jeff Sims to have to throw from the pocket downfield. You, you just do. And he made a couple of those throws, but I mean, you look at his final numbers. Jeff Sims had, uh, let's see, 10 of 13 for 112 yards. Completion percentage is too high, but I mean, 112 yards, you can, you know, you can live with, with that to some degree you want you want that 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 attempt number a lot higher than that you want to force him to have to throw because really where he killed you was 10 carries for 128 yards <laughs> yeah. you, you generally don't want a, an opposing ball carrier to average 12.8 yards a carry and that was all because of those busts in terms of guys being out of gaps guys jumping around guys l- losing one-on-one matchups in the open field and all that so yeah. After Virginia, we talked about if there was another situation similar to Virginia, there needs to be some reevaluation um, on the defensive side of the ball. Buck, is Carolina, is Jay Bateman at that point um, to reevaluate who's playing? Uh, I mean, is that a fair statement? Because to Jason's point, you can lead them to drink, but they can't, you can't force them to drink. There were times where they could make plays. But also to Jason's point is the bust. I think Gimmel also talked about yeah, there's one situation you had nine guys in some one defense, two other guys doing something else, touchdown for Georgia Tech. You play against good teams, they're going to eat you up when you're not prepared. Where are we on the defensive side of the ball, Buck? What I'm going to say now is probably not the most popular thing I've ever said uh, on these podcasts, um, but here, here's here's one thing to consider. Think about, you know, just toy with the idea a little bit. You know, we've all uh, talked about getting more people on the field for the defense during a game, using substitutions for getting splitting the carries more and i haven't seen this probably up now i just haven't looked at it the snap counts um but uh, and we saw a good bit of that uh against virginia the snap counts were um divided up a lot more the the thing is that you have got to get these new players players that have not been on the field uh, to this point, at least in any, uh, consistent rotation or predetermined sort of this guy's going to play this mini series or going to play this guy in this situation, these guys have got to gain some experience and they might be fresher. They might be more physically, you know, more athletic, more, um, everything except more experienced. And so just toy with the idea a little bit that maybe um, having a certain number of even snaps along the DL, 
you maybe have nine or eight uh, defensive linemen, each getting an equal number of snaps might not be the best thing. It, that might not be the best approach. I'm just throwing that out there for people to consider because on a couple of occasions, I saw North Carolina substitute what appeared to be almost their entire defense. Um, five or six players coming off the sidelines, five or six players going off. And without being in the rhythm of the game, without uh, having gone against your particular uh, side of the, the guy that you're supposed to beat on your side of the ball before during that game, it might be too much to ask to for that level of substitution at one time. Now, you, you are going to have to evaluate who's going to play. And maybe you give that guy a much higher number of snaps than what you were initially planning to give him um, over a guy that has been playing, has more experience, but the only way that really talented guy behind him is going to get more experience is to play him over the more experienced guy. I, I think those kinds of things, uh, how many snaps each player gets and in what situation can be something that is a tremendous um, headache for defensive staff. So uh, I'm just throwing that out there. But I, again, I do think, you're, Tommy, your main point being that they're going to have to make some decisions about who's going to get line line share of the snaps. And, and it's got to be based on productivity and, you know, your adherence to your skim, staying in your gap, doing the things that you need, you need to be doing, um, prove, earn your spot. So, um, what, what kills me is that Virginia can throw on North Carolina for 540 yards and Georgia tech can run on North Carolina for what was it? 300 yards, something crazy like that. Um, and North Carolina seems to be unable to stop what the other team is best at doing. Um, if you're trying to make a team one dimensional, what you want to do is to take away what they're best at, make them play left-handed, make them do the things that they're not very good at. If you're letting them do the things that they're really good at, you're, you're kind of, um, running uphill there defensively. Yep. Throwing, uh, yeah. Hey. And we all know what flows downhill, Buck. Yep. Looking at the snap counts, the Hasek 42 maxed out on the uh, defensive line. Gimmel, of course, 64. Interesting number. Eugene Asante, only 14 snaps. He didn't have uh, many last week either. And he didn't have very many good snaps in those 14. Yeah, and uh, Des Evans down at 15 as well. So let's let's get to where we're wrapping this one up. We've been going a little longer than I thought we would do. Were we always do? Uh, but yeah, we try to get off the air pretty quick after games like. <laughs> yeah, I just need to get on a bad game. See ya, uh, Jason. They're two and two in the conference. The other uh, division uh, pick, preseason divisional pick, is also two and two. Or they're two and two overall. The other divisional picks also two and two. Um, that would be Clemson. Uh, the ACC is upside down. A uh, lot of good teams or a lot of average teams beating a lot of mediocre teams. Where does Carolina go from here? The fan base is certainly rocked, and rightfully so. And it's one thing to lose. It's another thing to lose in the way Carolina has managed to do it in the two losses. Um, and, again, I, I go back to the grown-ups in the room. I've said it over and over. Uh, because they're very similar losses. But where does this team go from here? There are eight games left in the regular season. Still a ton to play for, maybe not the preseason goals. But if you're the coaching staff, what do you do? You got you got a game Saturday. You got a game the next Saturday. And on and on and on until this season runs out. Well, I mean, where you go from here is Duke at home. Which, I mean, that's a, a benefit. <laughs> you talked about, you know, okay, you know, average teams beating mediocre teams. Well, you may right now have a mediocre team whipping up on a bad team. So, uh, you know, Duke should be able to help cure what ails you. But the biggest thing for the coaching staff 
is that you're going to try to focus on fixing the process and making sure that, that you can, again, every, every week it's about finding what mistakes were made and fixing those mistakes and helping guys understand what they did, what they need to do better. And then giving them opportunities in practice to rep those rep the things that they made those mistakes on so that they get it right. So that they can't get it wrong. I mean, that's the old thing. You don't rep something. You don't practice something until you can get it right. You don't, you never practice just until you get it right. You practice until you can no longer do it wrong. And right now they're in positions where guys can do certain things, but it's not consistent enough. They're not consistent in doing that right thing every time. And you have to focus on that stuff and you have to get the team refocused. And I think you also have to figure out what, what, what's going on in your quarterback's head in your, in your leader's head and really work on. And I think Buck hit on something in terms of trust between your quarterback and your receivers. Uh, I think in particular, there seems to be some lack of trust between Howell and, uh, and, and Antoine green. Uh, because it, it seems to me that he gets, he, if when Howell does miss some of those deep shots or when he's, when, when a guy's open deep and doesn't get looked at, it tends to be that guy. And I wonder why that is. Um, but either way, there seems to be some trust issues in terms of him not being willing to pull the trigger on, on certain things. Uh, and you've got to figure out what you can do to get him comfortable and get him able to trust his guys and get him to see the field and look at his keys correctly. Uh, Cause a lot of those things can, can just help you, you know, the first half, if Carolina plays on offense like they should, then that game's maybe over at the half, given how the defense looked at that point. And then you don't have to deal with the adjustments and some of those things in the second half. So it's all about fixing those mistakes, figuring out who you are as, you know, as a team. I still think this offense lacks some identity and they've got to establish that again during the week and against Duke. And then, you know, after Duke, they get Florida State, which, again, another cream puff. And, you know, hopefully you can fix your uh, fix your your problems uh, as a coaching staff in those two weeks before you play Miami, who also might have given up by that point in the season. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the other benefit. So uh, there's still a lot of winnable games on the schedule and it's still actually possible to win the division. But you have to you have to take your focus off of those long term goals and get this team to do what they're supposed to do day in, day out. And you got a lot of young guys who have to learn how to compete like that day in, day out to be able to win and win consistently at this level. Great point there about, and I think maybe we've all lost focus in sight of that. And definitely the team has, it looks like to me. And that again, falls on the coaching to keep it there, but it's B1 and O each weekend. Buck, I'll let you close the show. Uh, this team has some things to play for. To Jason's point, uh, it needs to be 1-0 every weekend from here on out. Great point uh, by Jason and you. I think the thing that I'm going to be most interested in seeing is that, yes, uh, North Carolina has lost games uh, during MAC 2.0 in uh, 2019 and in 2020. And uh, to Jason's point about crowds, in 2020, there weren't any crowds, you know, so crowds couldn't be a factor in 2020 too much because they just weren't there. But I, I do think that um, going forward, being home um, for three consecutive weekends uh, will be a help. Um, the other point, though, the, and the original point I was trying to make is that under Mac 2.0, even though there have been other losses, to my mind, the loss last night was the worst one um, under the Mac Brown 2.0 regime. Um, that one in Tallahassee last year is a real close. The number of points they lost by, start with that, you know. Uh, um, you know, they, against Florida State, um, at least that was what a three point game or thereabouts. Um, and they're going to the orange bowl, whether they win that game or lose that game last year. And that's right. Yeah. So yeah, I like your point, but keep going. So, you know, this, this was a very bad loss, 
uh, let's get that out of the way first, because uh, there were failures on both sides of, uh, of the ball. It was kind of a system failure uh, as opposed to, you know, you could look at one or two isolated things and say, well, if they'd have just done this better, they might would have won the game. Well, you lost by uh, 20 points. So you had to have a lot of things go your way that didn't go your way. Uh, so it's going to, I'm going to be interested to see how the team and the staff bounces back from this because it's different really than trying to bounce back from a one point loss or a two point, three point loss on the road somewhere where you could kind of, well, you know, we, if this, even if this referee call had gone our way, we would have probably won. Uh, so I, that's the thing I'm going to be interested in seeing how they approach fixing all that needs to be fixed um, before they get, say, to um, the Notre Dame game. So I'll end with that. Yep, and you just had me editing my title to the game to the story of this podcast. Uh, it is now titled "System Failure," and that <laughs> and uh, everything we've discussed that is the most concerning for this guy um, is that fact. It's been the day after pod. They're always not fun when Carolina loses, but this one's been enlightening. This one's been, I hope, informative for the folks that listened um, that took the time to um, wallow in the sorrow of Carolina's performance and listen to this one. I'm sure VIP with EJ and Mike shall be quite interesting coming um, later on. Jason Staples, Buck Sanders, Johnny T-Shirt, johnnytshirt.com. Thanks, boys. Thanks, Tommy. Explore the weaponization of rap lyrics in the criminal justice system in the new documentary, As We Speak, Rap Music on Trial. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply.